1: Go to TrustArk.com slash Nimity dash free dash trial.
0: You're listening to Serious Privacy by TrustArc. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbarth and Kay Royal.
1: Where a year or five ago, many companies could still run their data protection and privacy compliance program with email, spreadsheet, and word files, today's reality is completely different. Accountability, documentation, and reporting requirements are much more detailed and widespread than they were before. Privacy technology is on the rise. I think it is safe to say we know something about that here at Trustark. But privacy tech is not just about privacy management. It is also about privacy enhancing technology, smarter processing technology, improved data security, and much more. Our guest today knows all about this. Lourdes Tureccia is the founder and CEO of Pix LLC an innovative privacy firm in Silicon Valley, and the founder and chief privacy tech evangelist of The Rise of Privacy Tech, a movement that brings together privacy innovators, investors, experts and evangelists to further privacy innovation. She is also a Privacy Tech and Law Fellow and adjunct professor of privacy law at Santa Clara University School of Law, and we are really for looking forward to speak with Lourdes today. Let's spread the gospel of privacy a little more. My name is Paul Breitbart.
2: And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. Thank you for having me, Kay and Paul. Thank you, Lourdes. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. I've known Lourdes for several years, and every now and then when we're conversing or on LinkedIn or whatever, I'm like, oh, I need to have you on the podcast. So I finally wrote her and said, okay, I'm going to have you on the podcast. We're going to do this. So... After a couple of years of trying, we finally right, made it happen. Exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. And we're still <laughs> yeah. in season 2, so it's all well well in time.
2: Exactly. So, I'm excited to be here. For the unexpected question, sweet or salty? Salty. <laughs> <laughs> Paul? Both. Definitely salty. Both. I am salty followed by sweet. I have to so I you're have not to for the I spend a lot of
1: caramel.
3: Yes. I spend a lot of time on the water nowadays, so I'm definitely salty. <laughs>
1: From that perspective, obviously I'm sweet.
2: Obviously. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going there if we're talking about personalities rather than food. (laughs) Okay, so... Let's get started. I'm going to give a little bit of a background. With With Lordis, we don't have a, a necessarily a defined topic. We do have defined topics we want to touch on, but no real defined topic. Y'all know us, kitchen table conversations, back porch. We're jumping off the porch and running through the woods. I love it. I've known Lordis for years. I think I originally met you, Lordis. Were you still a law student working for Dan or had you just graduated? Around that time, I'm not quite sure
3: when, but I know it was through Dan, who is... Dan Solov. Yes. No one, no one is like Dan. He's one of my trusted personal advisors and just, you know, the most down-to-earth and leading privacy thinker (laughs) in the world. So I have nothing but good things to say about Dan, and I'm grateful that he brought us together.
2: (laughs) Yes, me too. And then we've been on at least one panel together, which was... Lourdes was running, was moderating it, and it was about, you know, advice from executive women. And uh, from there, I think you went to teach? Oh, yeah.
3: So out of law school, I mean, I worked with Professor Daniel Solove. I was very lucky that I was working full-time during law school, actually. I worked in-house at a multinational corporation, and this was still during the time of Safe Harbor. But I got really lucky that I was like, I don't really know anything about, about, you know, information privacy. I know Fourth Amendment privacy. <laughs> and I was, I was super lucky that at when I was going to law school at night, Professor Daniel Solov was teaching, teaching the information privacy law class there. So that was, you know, the, the rest was history. I went to build the privacy program at a fortune company from scratch and, uh, worked at, in big law for a little bit with a client portfolio of more than 100 companies. So I've helped with all of the GDPRs and CCPAs and privacy shields and all of that stuff. And then really settled down in Silicon Valley. And, and has been, I've been in the cybersecurity industry, which is adjacent to the privacy tech industry. They're a little bit 10 to 15 years ahead of us. So uh, a lot of lessons learned there that we're trying to apply to the emerging privacy tech
1: landscape.
3: <laughs> that's that's my little 45-second spiel of what what my privacy journey was was like in a nutshell.
1: So what do you see as the emerging privacy tech landscape? What what how do you define it?
3: That's a really good question and it's a very insight I think it's a very insightful one because we found that key players in privacy tech founders, investors were just arguing about their version of what privacy tech is. So we recently went about and say well let's just sit down and before we talk past each other because this has implications right like how much how much money is invested what tools are built whether they actually uh, affect privacy and solve privacy problems or not so we sat down and defined and categorized and we ended up with uh you know technological solutions to privacy problems and we defined privacy the way leading privacy thinkers like Daniel Solove and Woody Hartzog and and all of the brilliant thinkers that we know, Danielle Citron and, and Neil Richards, have have spent their lives work defining privacy. So we brought that. We didn't reinvent invent the privacy wheel or the privacy conceptualizations, and we brought that to the white paper and really borrowed heavily from from their work when it comes to that. So so that's how we define privacy tech. And then now that we we have that definition, we thought now we can actually start looking at the light landscape, introducing a privacy tech stack, categorizing it that way. And that's probably the, the one thing that I'm really most uh, proud of and excited about is, is introducing that framework of, of what a privacy tech stack looks like. And I'm happy to share that with you. I don't know if you guys have seen that. And I know our read, our, our listeners won't be able to because this is a podcast, but at some point I'm happy to share that stack with you. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And if it's a publicly available link, we'll make sure that that's in the the show description as we go through. Anything you have as resources, we're absolutely delighted to share with our listeners. I know our listeners love it when we share resources.
1: Yes, absolutely. Oh, yay. So how did you become an evangelical?
3: So I talked about doing privacy for the last decade and I felt really, something felt off because every time I worked with these former clients, the companies I worked with, it really made me sad that most of the times, 90% of the time, the threshold question was, hey, can we get away with this under current privacy law? And most often the answer was yes. And it just didn't sit right with me. Despite all the developments in, in global data data protection laws in Europe and in China and in, in Brazil, all over the, in India... It just wasn't enough. Like organizations were doing, you know, paperwork basically, and I, I truly believe that it wasn't enough to move the needle forward the way I wanted to move the needle forward when it comes to privacy. But then I saw that there was this emerging space for privacy, for privacy tech, and it just felt more tangible because we're actually building solutions to privacy and data protection problems. And there weren't enough experts, privacy pros, focusing on it. So I decided. You know, we have amazing people like Paul and Kay focusing on, on, you you know, Europe and, you know, the work that you guys do at, at Trustdark and, and and there just wasn't enough folks kind of working with founders and investors. And I said, let me do it. And I, I worked, you know, I, I talked to Michelle Dennity who's one of our advisors, Deborah Farber, who's one of the early advisors of one of the big privacy tech startups that we know of. And we said, hey, let's do this together. And I I brought them on as advisors of the rise of privacy tech. And it's been a fun year and a half trying to build this community for founders, investors, and, and expert advisors in the privacy tech space.
2: So what was your biggest challenge then in building that community? What's been challenging
3: is just bridging the gaps between founders, investors, and domain experts. And I say that because most founders, I think, Maybe and I've talked to 150 of them in the last 18 months. Most of them don't come from privacy. So unless you're someone like Ray Everett, who is a co-founder at Data Secrets, or someone like Michelle Denady, who's been a veteran CPO for decades, then it, it, it's really hard. Most of them don't speak the privacy language. So a lot of the work that we've been doing is bridging those gaps between between founders and and domain experts. So we have a matching tool for for advisory roles that, that we have, we also have advisor um, a matching tool for founders and investors who might want to invest. Some of us are now angel investing in early stage privacy tech startups. So so that's been the biggest problem that we've seen. And, and our goal is to keep bridging those gaps to, to fuel privacy tech.
1: <laughs> is it fair to say that your focus so far has mainly been on, on US companies and US tech?
3: No, because Europe is really way ahead, in my opinion, when it comes to privacy tech. And I have worked with at least a handful of European privacy tech startups, advised some of them. And then we have a really amazing Israeli privacy tech community or ecosystem is probably the the better term for that. Just because Israel has has historically had a good cybersecurity startup or, or, or startup space in general. And, and we saw that in the adjacent cybersecurity space where I came from before I, I started the rise of privacy tech. And then now we're seeing it in privacy tech, too. There are some exciting privacy tech startups coming out of Israel. We're seeing it in Asia as well, in Singapore, in Australia. It's really a very global, it's a very global rise. It's a very global rise of of, of privacy technologies. and And it makes sense because the developments, the things that fuel privacy tech, some of them are privacy laws, right? Are, are global.
2: <laughs> and what's the biggest problem that privacy tech is seeking to solve? I mean, you can think of some of the more common types of privacy tech. I mean, duh, TrustArc is a privacy tech. We're the world's oldest privacy company. Right. I don't know that that's a fact, but I know by gosh, we've been here for a long, long time. So we have ours, but what is the problem most see- most are seeking to solve? Because clearly they see a pain point or they wouldn't be doing something. right? Right. Oh, there are so many.
3: But you're right. You're right to point out that data protection compliance type of solutions were the first ones. And it made sense because there was that urgency with GDPR and CCPA and all of these laws to get companies compliant. But some of the other problems that we're seeing that they're solving that are really exciting to me are you know, shifting some of these solutions left. So we call them shift left privacy. We had that trend in security And all that means is we're trying to build solutions earlier and earlier on, not just in the data lifecycle, but also in the development lifecycle. So even before personal data is collected, when you're building products, there are really exciting solutions that are putting out privacy tech solutions for developers and coders. So they, they build products that are privacy designed and engineered. So those are really exciting There are also folks in the consumer space, finally. If you were talking to me six months ago, I would be just so sad because the consumer the B2C space was lagging behind B2B (laughs) when it came to
2: privacy tech. And we've had a few really fascinating startups on the show, both of which were directed towards consumers or at least had an aspect of what they do that was directed towards consumers. So I, I agree with you. I think that part has been a little slow, but maybe it's starting to hit the stride. Why? In the B two B
3: side, we know that the compliance and data protection laws were the the key the key indicator or the fuel for for the rise of B two B privacy tech. I think on the consumer side, I, I've tracked consumer privacy sentiment for a, a few years, and each year it just goes up. Right? I mean, it's not a hundred percent, but consumer privacy sentiment has been changing, and and I think that's why consumers have been demanding privacy, and most of the companies have not been listening. And now we're finally seeing investors uh, invest in, in consumer BTC privacy tech. There are amazing studies here that we cite in the white paper on the marketplace demand for privacy, both on the business side and the consumer side. Consumer reports and peer research have these studies. So I, I think that's why people really, you know, people actually do want privacy. And, and, just because they use tools that are cool doesn't mean they don't care about privacy. I think that's <laughs> that's Professor Sola. Yeah, it's Professor Sola's latest thing it was like it's the myth of the privacy paradox. Just cuz I'm using a certain social media app doesn't mean I don't care about privacy. Right.
1: <laughs> no, no that's certainly true. So you've been you've been doing this for a while now. Any any success stories you can already share because you were talking about angel investors but are there also any yeah. public success stories already to tell maybe?
3: It's too early. We don't even maybe outside of one public company in in Europe or Canada, we don't really have any public privacy tech startups. So it de- depends on what you mean by success. I'm assuming you mean th- the thing that came to mind was like exiting, but no one's really done that. We do see folks, some of the big players acquiring smaller startups. I think it's a little bit too early for that in the privacy tech space for for all of that merging to happen. But, you know, if you look at the cybersecurity space, there will will continue to be exciting solutions for different categories of privacy tech. So it depends on what you mean by success. If we're talking about exits, no, there haven't been any.
1: (laughs) No, but maybe bringing bringing the right people together, the right investors with the right right technology, with the right people who may join advisory boards or boards of directors or something like that?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yes, we've probably matched at least a dozen folks for advisory board roles in privacy tech. And we know just from our Slack that investors in in our Slack have invested in privacy tech startups that they met through us through the rise of privacy tech. You know, some of the check sizes and all the details are confidential. So I don't really know like how much they wrote. But But yes, we've seen through the rise of privacy tech advisory roles were through our matching and, 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 and that. But I mean, our goal is to bridge these gaps. We've done a lot of that through our events as well. So we we put together events that are not just for privacy pros, they're really primarily for privacy tech founders, investors, and and then some privacy pros who want to be involved in privacy tech. I think there's a, there's quite a number of that. <laughs>
2: Beautiful. So if you were to look forward then to 2022, as you said, this has been a about 18 months journey for you in the rise of privacy tech and what you're seeing and what you're seeing move around the world, what would your predictions for 2022 be? What would, What do you think we're going to see? I should ask Paul, but...
3: Yeah, let's ask Paul, because we actually address that in the white paper, and I'll, I'm happy to answer afterwards.
1: <laughs> well, my predictions for next year, we... We'll see enactment of the Indian law that will be hopefully adopted in the coming weeks, which is another big market coming into play. Well, we discussed last week's episode from from IAPP Brussels, a lot of predictions on what is coming. More enforcement, more artificial intelligence, more debate about international transfers, more staffing issues. That certainly will also remain an issue. And I mean, all of us are teaching privacy law as well. and. I think all of us are trying to keep up in, in getting as many people educated as possible yes but it takes a lot of time to train people thoroughly to become good privacy professionals. I think all of that will will continue for next year And yes I do believe that technology will be uh, will be even more important going forward. If we talk about for example international transfers, one of the things that we really need to look in, into much more detail, is what ways of encryption and of serious encryption we can use to ensure that data stays secure even in countries where there is extensive government access legislation what kind of notification mechanisms can we design to inform people that their data have been accessed either by a government or by a third party that should not how do we how we do how do we keep our data in check
3: yeah i mean all those are great predictions. I'll focus mine in the privacy tech space since that's where I've been thinking or that's where my headspace has been for the last 18 months. I think we're going to see more and more developer privacy tools, which is one of the trends that we talked about. So, so tools for engineers who are building products. And then we see a lot of computational pets, right? So privacy enhancing technologies. We, we've heard of these things, but they, we've, we've heard of differential privacy of SMPT, secure multi-party computation, synthetic data, all of these things, but they were never, they weren't quite ready for commercial use. So they were, you know, we, we read the research. Um, a lot of the researchers have done amazing work at, at, at Carnegie Mellon and Harvard when it comes to these things, but I'm excited that some companies are actually pulling these pets. And 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 introducing them in into a product that others can then buy and use. So I think we'll start seeing more and more in that. We're probably going to start. We're probably going to continue seeing more investment money. So there's been six billion invested in privacy tech, with four of those in the last three years alone. I'm sure we'll see at least two billion in the next year, maybe more. So it, it'll be exciting to see where that goes. I, I keep tracking the numbers on Crunchbase when it comes to privacy tech investments.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can believe that. And for myself, I mean, I agree with, with both of y'all. I think one of the, the things that we're hoping we're going to see is a replacement for SHIELD. There's a lot of dependencies there, but that's something that a lot of people are hoping to see. I gather we're going to see some new standard contractual clauses out of Europe. So, yep. which is going to impact some of the others too, but then yeah,
1: the four we have we're not enough yet. So we'll we'll add a few more into the mix. Exactly, to make it We've, even more complex for you Americans to understand how we like to see things done in Europe.
2: Exactly, no more wow, wow, oh west for us. And then for myself, one of the things that I'm hoping we're going to see is more new professionals who are aware of and able to address privacy issues because. I can't hardly think of any jobs that you wouldn't touch personal data at some point. I mean, I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, it's so I'd like to see more business people, more engineering uh, students, more lawyers, more everyone coming out of school with more knowledge about what it means for privacy law and handling personal data, what it means about cybersecurity um, and cyber law. Different things along that line, so I don't know that that's a prediction so much as a a wish and a hope and a prayer. Wish, and I certainly that's such a great point to make, and I share that wish
3: too because, like you implied, privacy is so cross functional. So we need more we need more engineers, we need more GRC, infosec folks, we we need more lawyers, and there's such a a shortage of us doing privacy, and such a huge demand for for privacy professionals. And, you know, we need more finance folks who are thinking about the value of privacy and how to put privacy on the balance sheet.
2: Right. Exactly. We do need cross-functional people. And with with what you're doing, the rise of privacy tech, one of the things, and Paul's heard me say it many, many times, is bothers me, is the startup companies that don't know how to build privacy in from the beginning. Then they want to be bought and they have devalued themselves because half the data they have is illegal or Something and them trying to play catch up doesn't work. And so if you really, especially if you're a privacy tech startup. Well, a lot of the ones that I see aren't even a privacy tech startup. They're, they're literally just startup companies that their goal was to build a widget and get it out the door. And they built their widget and they got it out the door, but it collects data illegally or something along that line. And so. But I mean, of course, in the privacy tech startup world, we we hope they learn privacy. So I see y'all playing a, a wonderful role in that. But this is just in general, just in general, people are brilliant and they're creating things, but they don't know what they don't know. Right. And so that's why we need that's more a great point. evangelic e- evangelists. Yeah, Paul, you threw me there. <laughs> that's why we need more evangelists out there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Raise the roof. Oh. So.
1: <laughs> no, but I I do agree and this is I mean this is what we also discussed last year when we were starting the podcast that we want to get the word out how important data protection is in our day-to-day lives and want to talk about want to talk to people about all these amazing developments whether that is legislative or more more technological. To make sure that people actually start realizing this is this is a whole new era that, that was started well basically a decade ago. Yeah. This morning I participated in a, a panel at Privsec Global. Okay you had one too.
2: Six o'clock. We in had the,
1: the six AM, well mine was at nine AM, that was still early. And that was all about the question data protection and privacy laws, a bright future or a decade of decline ahead? After the great decade that we had, that actually started almost to, a day, to the day a year, uh, ten years ago, with the leaked draft of the GDPR, that basically gave rise to the whole new generation of data protection laws that we are seeing around the world. So in ten years, a lot really has changed. I think the the, the rise of privacy tag shows some of those results as well. Without the future of privacy and the GDPR introduction that decade ago i'm not sure whether we would be having these conversations right now
3: can i ask you guys a question cuz i'm i'm sure you've an amazing guest
1: no we don't do that in this podcast <laughs> go ahead
3: i'm no seriously i'm curious though i've I had these conversations with some of the you know people like professor daniel solov and i'm curious what your opinion is cuz it's it's a hot debate we've we've certainly had quite the developments in pri- da- privacy and data protection laws do you guys feel like it's actually moving the needle when it comes to privacy? And I think Professor Solov's coming out with a piece of work looking into this specific question. And, and I have my own opinions, but I'm curious what you two think having spoken with, I don't know, is it hundreds now of at least dozens of privacy pros and, and worked in this space for, you know, decades. So what do you guys think? Is it? Are these laws actually changing? Like, are they actually moving the needle on individual privacy? Are they changing stuff for people like you and me, for for individuals? Because at the end of the day, privacy is about people. It's not about it's not just about data. It's about the people, you know, the, whose data we're talking, we're handling and processing.
1: I think that's already the distinction between the American and the European approach. If you forgive me, you talk about <laughs> privacy being about people. That's right. But here in Europe, we talk about data protection first and foremost which is about the data, which is also about the people. But the data are the core of what we are protecting in, in the first place, and not just its use, but also the collection. And I do believe that these new laws have made a difference. Maybe not so much yet in our day-to-day lives, in how our data being used or misused, companies know about us or what governments know about us, but they have certainly made a difference in the awareness that people have about the importance of the fundamental rights to privacy and data protection. And I think that more and more people start to recognize that there are indeed these fundamental rights and that it is not just a consumer right as it has been regarded for many years.
2: And I do think it's moving the needle. I I agree with Paul, If, if only in terms of awareness. I mean, here in the United States, most people never knew they had any rights to any personal data about themselves, or they assumed they had rights to all the data about themselves. And now they're learning differently. And states are starting to pass laws here in the U.S. So I do believe that the laws are moving the needle, probably not as fast as we would like to see it go. It's not zero to Uh 103.2. I think it's building the awareness and it's forcing companies to pay attention to to what they're doing if they truly want to operate in a legally compliant way. I think laws such as the PIPL, the GDPR, the UK's DPA with the GDPR, all of those I absolutely believe are helping companies, not just people, but helping companies become more aware of what they should be doing with the data. And then again, a lot of the startups that I see that are devalued because they didn't build in proper data practices. I think that's a big wake-up call to a lot. And if we didn't have the laws in place, it wouldn't be an issue.
1: And I think maybe also to to come back to one of your earlier comments, it is no longer about companies trying to get away with something. It is about companies actually realizing that they need to comply and that compliance can be also beneficial to them in their daily operations. And we see bigger companies now also using data protection as a unique selling point. And I think that will also grow in the coming years. But I'm curious to hear your own thoughts as well, Lourdes.
3: So I, I do see the needle being moved in certain aspects. Like like Hay explicitly said, not quite where we want want it to be. Because I like playing devil's advocate, I'm going to raise some, some of the points that others are raising. I, I think, I don't want to misattribute it, but Professor Hartzog, for instance, is one of them, where he says you know, most of these laws are just really paperwork. Like at the end of the day, and, and Professor Ari Waldman was saying, it's it's all just being, it's FIPS. It's basically a process. And, and at the end of the day, yes, there's more awareness, which I think is really important. I, we, we need awareness. But I'm, I'm not quite sure, save for a few companies who really believe that privacy can be a competitive advantage and a value. I don't know if they're doing it just for the sake of taking boxes as opposed to actually making a difference. That's my devil's advocate response that the others
2: have raised. <laughs> I will say we, we know that there's a lot of companies out there that are not invested in making a true difference. At this point, they're invested mm-hmm. in a privacy tech solution that checks the boxes, but it doesn't really assist them in moving their compliance better. There are good privacy tech that help you do that. And there are bad privacy tech that help you do that. So I will say that based on that, I know that there's a lot of companies out there that really just want to check the box. But on the other side, there's a lot of companies out there that really want to be legal and they really want to do the right thing. And I can say that because they're rolling out their, their corporate policies Not just to the data that's mandated for them to protect, but they're protecting all their data because it's the right thing to do. If it really offered them a competitive differential to offer privacy, that helps. If it really offered them a competitive advantage to not give everyone the same privacy rights or to not protect all the data to the same level, I think they would do that. So they're giving up a particular competitive advantage in order to do the right thing for people. Yeah. And I've said All it right. many times, and I'll say it again: privacy is a helping profession. Yep, it is. We are here to help the average Joe on the street. You mentioned
3: something that's actually a highly controversial topic in the privacy tech space, and and many of the privacy pros that are are in the privacy tech space and working with these startups. We actually, you know, what what is your perspective when it comes to privacy tech startups claiming? You know, we get you GDPR compliant Ugh. because our our uh, I know our perspective is that no tool is going to get you compliant,
2: right? It it really makes it really makes that that's like companies <laughs> saying we're HIPAA certified. Okay, how exactly? There's no such thing right. as a HIPAA certification. <laughs> yeah, there there's some that get you close,
1: and there are GDPR validations, but yeah. no okay. real certifications yet, and. Of course, there are a lot of uh, companies out there that that still work on the basis of tick-box compliance. And GDPR and and all of the modern generation of privacy laws, they are just not about ticking boxes. It is much more because almost all of them are based on the accountability principle, which means that actual work needs to be done and demonstrated on an ongoing basis.
2: Data protection by design. That's not That's not a tick box. It's not a, it's not a tick box. It actually has to occur. Exactly. But people have to understand, you can't just change behavior because someone tells you to change behavior. You have to change behavior because you understand the why behind it. And sometimes the why behind it is the law says so. Do you want to go to jail? Some of these laws would send you to jail. Do you want to go to jail? But in most cases it's you're not doing it because the law says so. You want the people to understand that the law requires you to do it because this helps people.
3: And at some point we wanna be able to speak the language of non lawyers and say, Let's do it because it's gonna make us money as some of you know, the Cisco I benchmark uh, study has shown the when it comes to privacy's ROI or because it's going to make our customers feel, trust us when it comes to the products and, and the data that, that our products process and and all of the other types of non-legal arguments for, <laughs>
2: for doing this. And I'm nodding my 5C. head because I'm like, this is the same thing we've heard about having two or three women on boards of directors, companies succeed better. But hey, I don't see a lot of companies doing that either. All right. So Paul, any last question?
1: Yeah. Companies that would like to put more privacy women on their boards or in other ways want to want to join we... the movement and want to be part of that evangelical movement when it comes to privacy and data protection how would they go about what is what are ways to become involved with the rise of privacy tech
3: because we started from scratch we started with events that bring together founders investors and domain experts as advisors and we've had people you know introduce people to each other that ended up in advisory roles. We then made that more. We created that into a program where we have a matching program. We have a membership for people for key players in privacy tech, so founders, investors, and domain experts. and And one of the exclusive perks of membership, if you're a domain expert, is that you you know you're top of the list when it comes to advisory roles that that these startups need as they build products and scale. We also get you know we we have a leading privacy officers who are board members come and teach. So we've had, we have Keith and and Cheng C from cybersecurity talk about how to break into these boards and, and what are the things that you, you know, what's the distinction between an advisory board versus a board of directors. And one can be a stepping stone for another one is earlier stage or the other is for more public right. or later stage type of, of startups. You know, We have a newsletter. You get the latest news from us. We have a Slack if you want to engage with people in privacy tech that people can join. I'm happy to send links to all of those. And then for those who, yeah, for those who want to really get more involved on a daily basis, we have the membership. It's not for everyone, obviously, because most folks are not as interested in privacy tech as others. But for those who want to get plugged into the privacy tech space and say, hey, this is actually really something I want to do, we have those we also just made available with a white paper a privacy tech database so we have that and startups can add their you know they put in a link and they add their startups information there the products that they have the categories the with well, the stage that they have and and customers can also do that i actually built that for customers cuz i had cpos before who were saying there's so much marketing speak it, it's not but it really isn't clear who's doing what like who's what's going on under the hood so we have that going on that we make publicly available on our site. So I'm happy to send those as well. So come to our events, join us if you want to be in the privacy tech space. And then we have a whole list of 20 different things that we're working on that we want to we wanna ship out in the, next, in the next three months, six months, year, a few years, just depending on what the community wants. So we're prioritizing according to what the community really wants.
1: So in short, stay tuned. Very good.
3: Absolutely.
1: Thank you very much for joining us today, Lourdes. And on that note, we'll end another episode of Serious Privacy. Thank you for listening to us, as always. Thank you. And if you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us and rate and review our episodes in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite podcast platform. Join the conversation on LinkedIn. Just look for Serious Privacy. Follow us on social media on Twitter uh, at Podcast Privacy or reach out via email at Serious at TrustSark.com. You'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Euro Colby. Until next week, bye.
2: Bye, y'all.
0: That was Serious Privacy.
1: Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further.
0: Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI.
1: TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost effectively.
0: And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software.
1: Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting.
0: TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that. Helping organizations understand AI better, and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security.
1: Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework.
0: If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts.